Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. Well, good morning and welcome to The Rocks. Incredible title package, isn't it? It's amazing. It's really thought-provoking. It's challenging. Uh, It definitely leaves us wanting more. Uh, So my name is Alistair, and I normally hang out down at our Beldivis location. Uh, I have a beautiful wife, her name is Kira, and a two-year-old son uh, named Ezra. We've got another child on the way who is due relatively soon. Uh, But I'm lucky enough to come up here today to continue our series on good call. Essentially, how do we know whether a decision we've made is a good call, and what can we do to make better calls in our future? Uh, From Monday to Friday, I work as a high school teacher, uh, so that's my kind of full-time job, um, but volunteering a little bit here at The Rocks as well. Now, I don't know what the average age is in the room today, but it is a 9 o'clock service, so I'm going to assume it's uh, a little bit older than uh, 19, but when I was a teenager, I don't know if you guys uh, can, I'm 29 years old, so if you've got a kindred spirit with me, that's good, you might be a bit older or a bit younger, but when I was a teenager, we did not really have mobile phones. The first iPhone came out when I was in year 10, and before that, phones were just kind of a normal keypad with a screen, you could play Snake on it, and I remember the moment in which the first phone came out with an FM radio in it, and everyone said, this is going to be the future, and then, you know, six months, 12 months later, a phone came out with a camera on it, and everyone thought that this was going to revolutionize the world, and it ended up doing that, but why do I bring this up? Well, because cameras were not necessarily something you had in your pocket all the time, everyone purchased a digital camera. And one of the biggest things about a digital camera was that it had a flash on it. And so kind of like mid-2000s, 2005, 2008, 2009, there would be a very common photo that would appear on a MySpace and eventually probably a Facebook, which was a group of teenagers standing in a bathroom with a cluttered countertop holding a camera, taking a group photo in a mirror. And all you could see in the photo was a white diamond in the corner and some red eyes because that's how terrible the cameras were. Now, obviously, technology has moved fairly quickly and fairly fast since then. And one of the things we have now is essentially a selfie camera in our pocket. And I've seen some people use these in amazing ways. I was on the train the other day and a lady was using her phone as a mirror while she did her makeup. And I thought if my 15-year-old self could see this situation right now, I would be absolutely blown away. And so why I bring this up is because when we're talking about what we're going to talk about today, I don't want us to think necessarily just in one specific context. I want us to think about all the different ways that these things can apply. And I want to start off today with a really scary, confronting thought. And that is the easiest person in the world to deceive is the person in the mirror. And mirror here can extend to... FaceTime camera, selfie camera, video call camera. The easiest person in the world, in the entire world, to deceive is the person in the mirror. Now, let's think that, let's let that that sink in for a moment, but let's be honest here. No one on the planet wants to practice making bad decisions. We can get to the end of a period of time and go, wow, I've made some pretty bad calls, but no one intentionally goes out to make poor decisions. And so we've got to grapple this and we've got to really try to take this to heart. And I bring this to you today, not as someone that is standing on stage saying, you all need to do better. I bring it to you today because it's something that's part of my own life and part of my own story. When I was 17 years old, 
as most 17-year-olds do. I was saving up for my first car, and I was working at McDonald's about 12 hours a week, and I'd saved up enough money to purchase a vehicle, and I was scrolling through Gumtree back in the day, didn't have Marketplace then, and I found a four-wheel drive ute that I thought was going to be absolutely perfect. But I was not a particularly good haggler, and so I contacted a family friend and got him to come with me to come look at the car. He knew about mechanical things, and he had a look at the car, and it was advertised at 3500 Now, I only had three grand, so I was hoping that my friend could hopefully haggle this person down. Anyway, he takes it out for a test drive with me. I love the car. I'm immediately sold. I'm like, this is the best vehicle that has ever, this is an AMG Mercedes to me. So I'm going to buy the car. I don't care how much it costs now. But my mechanical friend kind of takes it for a drive. He checks it out. And eventually we get back to the person's house and he offers them $1,800 for it. And I almost had a heart attack. I'm like, I don't want to offend this person so much that now I can't buy the car. But then about two days later, she calls me back and she says, look, I can't do 1,800, but I could do 2,000. And I thought, this is amazing. So I purchased the vehicle. Incredible. I took it to my family's mechanic for its first service and he went, you only paid two grand for this? And I'm like, I know, it's incredible. But for some reason, about three or four months later, I think this car is not good for me. I need to sell this vehicle. Now, everyone in my life was saying, Al said, do you really want to sell the car? And I'm like, I've got to get rid of it. It's a money pit. It's a problem. Everyone's like, are you sure you want to get rid of it? And I'm like, yep, I'm going to get rid of it. So I put it up for sale. Now, a surprise comes along. Someone contacts me, not wanting to purchase my car, but wanting to swap cars with me. Now, 17-year-old self is thinking, now, this is a good deal. This is a very good deal because I don't have any time in the middle where I don't have a car where I don't have to look for another car. And on top of that, what does the person want to swap me? Oh, yeah. A 1980 Jaguar XJ6. 4.2 litre straight six engine, three-speed automatic gearbox, full leather interior, wood grain dash. This is the best deal I have ever heard of. And once again, everyone around me is saying, really, mate? Is it really that good of a deal? And I'm like, how can I go wrong? It's advertised on Gumtree for $6,000. I'm making a $4,000 profit. So, idiotic 17-year-old Alistair does the swap. Now, in the moment of watching my car drive out of the petrol station car park that we swapped our cars in, I had an immediate moment of, oh, have I done the right thing here? And sure enough, three weeks later, My Jaguar was in pieces, no longer worked, and I sold it for $300. So when I'm talking about making good calls, I am well experienced in making bad ones. And so what I want us to think about is this idea here. Good questions will help us lead to good decisions. I did not ask good questions in the Jaguar episode. I asked terrible questions like, Or how big is the engine? How cool does it look? What color is it? I didn't ask practical questions like how much does it cost for a fuel pump? $1,400 if anyone's interested. Now, it's not enough to just simply have these good questions. There's three stages to this, right? We need to ask, we need to answer honestly, and then we need to act. Having something is different to using something, right? Some of us, right, we own a treadmill. It's in our garage. We own an exercise bike. We even own a bicycle. But owning that thing does not make us fit. Using that thing 
is what makes us fit. And so it's not just good enough for us to have good questions, which is going to be your challenge during this kind of six-week series. We're going to ask five big questions each Sunday, and you can possess them and you can own them, but your job is to now actually use them. So that is going to be uh, important for us. So the reason that we as a church community believe so strongly about this is because that we believe that the decisions we make don't only impact us, they also impact others. Think back to my Jaguar moment, right? I spent the next six months working full-time to save up to buy another car, and that essentially put my life six months behind. It impacted the person that I was dating because all my time and money was spent working and saving. I couldn't go out and have fun adventures. I couldn't go do fun things because all I was doing was saving up for a car, right? That decision that I made impacted people that were outside of just myself, And so without any further ado, I want us to tackle today's question, which is the integrity question. If we come back to this kind of central thing that we're going to hang all of our clothes off for the next 20 minutes or so, it's this idea that the easiest person in the entire world to deceive is the person in the mirror. And if that's true, then the question of integrity is really, really important to us. And the first thing that we need to do to answer the integrity question well is to fire the dishonest version of ourselves. We need to fire the dishonest version of ourselves. You will know this if you have ever worked with a compulsive liar. You cannot work with a compulsive liar. You cannot employ a compulsive liar. You have to fire a liar. Because everything that they do will twist and warp reality in some way. And so what we need to do, we need to commit to this, we need to fire the dishonest version of ourselves. And that is scary because the honest you will tell you the truth even when it makes you feel bad about you. And that's hard and it hurts. But it's important for us because we don't want to be able to go in six months' time, 12 months' time, how did I get here? We want to be able to look back and go, I know how I got here because I asked intentional questions that were good and I acted after I answered them honestly. But the reality is that you are a sucker for you, just like I am. We convince ourselves. We have an internal monologue that tells us that everything we're doing is fantastic. We justify ourselves and we try to make ourselves think that everything that we're doing is okay. And if anyone has ever known anyone that has been involved with Alcoholics Anonymous or anything like that, they would say that the first step for recovery is rigorous honesty. Not only with yourself, but with the people around you. And so what we need to commit to is this kind of concept of rigorous honesty. And as we commit to that honesty, we will slowly start to fire this dishonest version of ourselves. But just like physical exercise, this is a muscle that we need to flex, that we need to work on. It's not going to be something that immediately you can do. You can't, unless you've been training, you can't go out tomorrow and run a marathon. I mean, you can try. You might be very injured and hurt afterwards. You need to step up to that point. And so just like that, we need to practice being honest. And so what we need to commit to is telling ourselves the truth, even when it makes us feel bad about ourselves. Now, I personally do believe that mental health will be the next kind of frontier of our health system, and for that's like for the whole world, I would say. But I would say that there are worse things than just feeling bad about ourselves. There really, really are. And if we are intentional with the way that we do this, we're not putting ourselves in an unhealthy place, 
But what I would argue, and I'm going to argue this fairly, fairly aggressively, is that denying that something is bad about yourself is just as unhealthy as feeling bad about yourself. If you deny that something is actually bad about yourself, you're putting yourself in a, the same state of mental unhealth as if you had just acknowledged it and dealt with it. Worse than that, refusing to acknowledge that something is bad about yourself is even more unhealthy. So you could know in your heart of hearts that something, a part of you, is not good. But you will sell it to yourself as actually it is good. Potentially, you're a really honest person. This is how you would sell it to yourself. You go, I'm so honest. I'm so good at telling people why they suck at everything they do. Right? You are taking something that is not actually that good, but you sell it in a way to yourself that goes, no, that's a great trait. That's what everyone wants in me. Now, for me, my undergraduate degree, I did a Bachelor of Education. Obviously, I'm a teacher. Um, I did chemistry and physics as my major, and my minor was outdoor education, which was, for me, the, my favorite part of my degree. And a part of the outdoor education kind of component, you're doing a lot of expeditions. And we're on one expedition out uh, kind of in the dwelling up area, and we're walking off track, and we're walking between two points. And we're probably about halfway through the day where our kind of education leader stops us all and says, hey, where are we going? And we all say, laughing, well, we're going to our campsite. He's like, okay, great. Everyone close your eyes, spin around three times, take two steps to your right, and now show me on a map where we are. Now, this was confronting because we had no idea where we were because no one was looking at a map. So it took us about 20 minutes, but it was important for us because he realized what we were doing was walking in a direction that we kind of thought we knew where we were going when we stepped off the track. And what he realized was that we were walking in a direction that wasn't actually the correct way. And so the first step that we all need to do is acknowledge where we are. Because you'll never get to where you're going unless you acknowledge where you are right now. It's impossible for us to increase our integrity, to form a more honest version of ourselves, if we don't actually acknowledge where we're at right now. And being truthful with where we're at in our integrity is important. Because if you're honest about what you're ch why you're choosing what you're choosing, you will be more honest with whatever the consequences are of your decisions. And we all have a word that we use to describe people that don't take responsibility for their decisions. We call them irresponsible. And no one wants to be irresponsible. So we need to be more integrous with where we're at right now so that we can acknowledge where we need to go. Now, at this point, I don't think I've brought forward anything new. Every, everything I think I've presented now, everyone kind of knows, right? There's nothing that different in here. But it comes back to this question. We actually have to ask the integrity question of ourselves every single time we make a decision that will impact us or others. It's a really simple question that we can ask. We just need to say, am I being honest with myself? It's a simple question that opens an avenue for your own internal dialogue that will change the way that you think about your decisions. You don't win anything by justifying a bad decision. Because really, when we're justifying we're just a lying. And I wish I could take credit for that, but it's not mine. 
So once we've asked that question, we can move on. Am I being honest with myself? Great, I can move on. What's the second question I'm going to ask? Am I being honest with myself really? Because honestly, we're probably not. I can think of many decisions that I've made even in the last week where I've, am I being honest with myself? Yeah, for sure, definitely. And then moved on and made a terrible decision. For example, staying up late playing video games. I love video games. I think they're just amazing. But we have a two-year-old son that doesn't sleep. And so staying up late playing video games and then waking up at five o'clock to look after a toddler is just a terrible decision. But in the moment, you're like, one more game. I could definitely go up a rank. Like, it's, I have to do this. When's the, the event ends in 12 hours. I ha, there's no other reason. Am I being honest with myself? Definitely. This is what a responsible father does. Why am I doing this? Really? Why am I dating him? Really? Why did I buy this car? Really? Why did I buy this house in this area? Really? Why did I take that job or that promotion? Really? We have to start being honest with ourselves. Now, some of us in the room might actually be salespersons, but I'm going to assume that most of us aren't because not many people are actually very good at selling things to other people, but we're very, very good at selling things to ourselves. And oftentimes, we'll get to the wrong side of a bad decision. We'll look back and go, what was I doing? What was I thinking? If I could go back to 17-year-old Alistair and say, don't, don't get the Jaguar, I think about... I could be living in a mansion right now. That's how much money I wasted on that stupid car. What was I doing? What was I thinking? And herein lies the problem. That we weren't thinking. We were selling. We had something that started off as a want. And then we did a little trick in our brain. And we said, no, I need that. Now, justifying a want is actually very difficult really hard. But if you can convince yourself that it's a need, suddenly your brain kicks into overdrive and can justify almost anything. Now, I want to challenge you that as soon as you start feeling yourself selling yourself on anything, let's hit pause. Because think back, you can take a moment now if you want, think back to every good call you've honestly made. Did you really need to sell yourself on it? Because I'm going to guess no. We know when something's a good decision. We know it. We don't have to sell it. We very rarely sell ourselves on a good decision. I'm not saying that we don't consider every option. I'm not saying we don't take the decision seriously. But we don't have to sell ourselves as to why it's a good call. Now... Essentially, the reason for that is a, a concept called bias. Now, there's lots of different decision biases. There's a lot of research you can do on it. There's, depending on who you ask, somewhere between 12 and 20 different decision biases. But the one that most people struggle with, and this is definitely my one, is something called confirmation bias. And essentially, confirmation bias is looking at proof that matches our belief and ignoring facts, important word, which contradict our opinion. So for me, right, I have something I believe, I care about. I'm then going to seek out other people or other voices that also believe what I believe that tell me that's a great idea, right? 
If I really want to buy a new bicycle, I'm not going to go and talk to a financial planner. I'm going to go for a ride with friends and ask them where they bought their bike from and how much they paid and how much faster it made them and how much cooler it looks. I'm going to go and talk to people that tell me what I want to hear. It's confirmation bias. Now, even if you're someone who potentially doesn't know Jesus, doesn't care about Jesus, I'm going to share a story with you that I think talks to confirmation bias better than anything else. Now, I truly believe that there is a bunch of writings in the world. I mean, humanity is many, 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 many years old, and we have a lot of collective wisdom. And I think if we can kind of close down our skepticism and go, instead of rejecting something because of what I believe, I'm going to engage with it because of what I want to learn, I think it's important. So essentially what I'm going to do is share with you a story from Jewish history. Now, it's a Jewish history story uh, that can be found in the Bible, but it's not just found in the Bible. It's also found in the Jewish Torah, which is something that um, Jews read still today. And so it's not just something that Christians believe, but it's a story that's kind of occurred for us probably about 2,500, 3,000 years ago. And it's a story of a guy called King Jehoiakim. Now, King Jehoiakim is essentially the leader of the southern nation of Israel called Judah. And this is literally, if you go now to modern-day Israel, it literally is the southern half of modern-day Israel. It's an um, area called Judah. And he has an advisor. And the advisor's name is Jeremiah. And if you're into high fantasy, like Jeremiah would be like the hand to the king or the hand to the queen. It's someone who intimately knows everything that's going on in the kingdom and can provide wise counsel for their leader. Now, at this stage in the history, there's a guy uh, roaming around called King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. He's a super powerful guy, like super powerful, has a really big army, is very aggressive, and Jehoiakim is having to pay Nebuchadnezzar protection money. Essentially, he is paying a tax at the end of every year to the king of Babylon so that the Babylonians don't kill them all. It's important, right? It's an important thing. But for some reason, after about three years, Jehoiakim says, I've had enough of this. I don't want to pay this tax anymore. But he doesn't just say, I don't want to pay the tax anymore. He also says, instead of paying Babylon, who is on my eastern side, I'm going to pay that same money to Egypt, which is on my eastern side. So he's essentially changing banks. Now, this is a problem because King Nebuchadnezzar had a weird, like, psychotic thing where he would collect kings. When we say collect kings, he would literally capture kings, gouge their eyes out, keep them in, like, slavery. And then whenever he had people over for dinner, he would get all of the blind kings to walk through the living room, chained together. He was like a super weird psychopath, right? And this is the guy that Jehoiakim says, I'm not going to pay him the protection money anymore. Now, the plot thickens a little bit more in that Egypt has just had a massive fight with Babylon and Egypt won. So Babylon is already fairly peeved. And they're peeved at Egypt, who Jehoiakim just changed banks to, essentially. So what happens? Of course, Babylon invade Judah. They capture the king, get put, put in slavery. Fantastic. Eyes gouged out, the whole shebang. So as Nebuchadnezzar is leaving, he uh, anoints a new king, and he puts in charge King Jehoiakim, which is the son of King Jehoiakim. And three months later, Nebuchadnezzar comes back because King Jehoiakim is doing a bad job and is not paying his taxes. So he captures King Jehoiakim and also gouges his eyes out and puts him in slavery and appoints a new king, King Zedekiah, who is the uncle of Jehoiakim. And Jeremiah sits down with Zedekiah and says, look, 
Let's have a look at the last couple of years. I think, all things considered, we pay Babylon the money. Zedekiah says, no. He is then killed, and there is never another king of Judah ever again. Now, we hear a story like that, and we go, what were they thinking? What decisions were going through their minds to get to that point? And you and I both know now that they were not thinking. In fact, they were selling. So Jeremiah records some of the things that he reflects on after this whole thing is over. And I think that this statement that he reflects on this whole situation is incredible. He says this, The heart is deceitful above all things. They were not thinking, they were selling, and they were not selling from their head, they were selling from their heart. There was a belief in here that they wanted to justify. And for some reason, logic did not prevail, and instead they followed what was in here. But he goes on, Jeremiah, and he says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Now, why is that important? Because deceit is difficult to detect. If someone straight up lies to you, you can, like, work that out pretty quick, right? Someone being openly dishonest is very easy to spot. Hey, I just ran a mile in four minutes. I don't think you did that because that was like a world record until like 15 years ago. I don't think you did that on your Sunday jog, right? If someone is outright lying, you can work that out pretty quick. But if someone is being deceitful, it's in fact incredibly hard to detect because they're telling a mixture of truth, half-truth, and lie all together. And our hearts do this to us all the time, where we are deceitful rather than outright dishonest. And so Jeremiah finally finishes this thought with a question, and he says, who can understand it? So another way for us to think about what Jeremiah is presenting to us is, I don't understand why I decided what I decided. And so that is why I think it's important for us to really hone in on this question. Am I being honest with myself, really? And the reality is the answer to this question may be uncomfortable, but I would say that you owe it to yourself to know, even if it's not a direction that you want to go. So what I'm saying is we need to ask this question, but we don't necessarily need to do whatever we obviously find as the correct option. Sometimes it's enough to just practice the honesty with ourselves part of the thing, and then we can deal with whatever the outcome is later. Because it can be a bit confronting if we go into a really difficult decision, ask the question, see the answer, go, I'm not ready for that yet. I'm just going to hang out out here. At least we practice the honesty bit and we're honest with our motivation. We go, actually, I can't make that call right now. It's too big for me. But at least you are honest with yourself with where you are at. And we can ask ourselves another question. We can say, am I telling myself the truth or am I selling myself a regret? This rigorous honesty is, going to lead, is what is going to lead us to being better. And it kind of comes full circle to this kind of big idea that I will not lie to myself even when it makes me feel bad about myself. And I want to challenge you that feeling bad about ourselves is not the worst thing in the world. 
All right, now, there are three questions that we are going to take away. You've obviously got your cards with you on your thing. Now, there's two sides to those cards. The first side is like this, um, someone, like a question to ask somebody else. The second side is a question to ask yourself. If you're going to take the train home or an Uber home, can I suggest maybe don't ask someone else question? They're fairly deep. They're, you might need a little bit of relational equity. You can't really walk onto the train and go, so what's your biggest misconception in life? What's your biggest mistake? What's your biggest regret? What's your biggest insecurity that might not go super well for you. But I've got some questions that I want to ask you. Number one, if a sales associate in a retail store was selling you the way that you are selling yourself, would you buy what they're selling? You can hear this already, right? Does your wife really need to know? Does your husband really need to know everything that you spend your money on? I mean, really, you could just donate it or sell it if you don't use it. If a salesperson said this to you in a shop, you would either purchase it because you're a terrible person or you would walk away, right? You would go, no way, you can't. You can't lie to me like that. You can't make me worse than that. Okay, another question for you. Where do you struggle the most with telling yourself the truth? What are your go-to justifications? You will know what this is already. You already heard it in your mind straight away. You went, yep, I'm not honest with myself there. And is it possible that fear of what you discover about yourself by being honest with yourself is an obstacle to the freedom that you desire? Now, those questions are pretty confronting. And it can feel like we're stepping out of a place of unknown. And it's true, we are. But I want to share with you really quickly as we close the final moments of Jesus' life. Now, Jesus' life is recorded across a bunch of different Gospels by different people. And there's a Gospel that I really love by a guy called Mark. And he writes about Jesus' life and he writes extremely fast. He just gets big ideas and pumps them through really, really quickly. But he captures this moment in Jesus' final breaths on the cross where Jesus asks a question out loud. As he's dying, he says this, At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Jesus' lowest moment, despite the fact that he is fully God incarnate, can see everything that is to come for all of the future, has seen every moment in history, there is a moment in his life where he has to ask himself and God an honest question. That's a hard question. And he says, God, have you forsaken me? In this moment, as I stand here on this cross, breathing my last breath, have you forsaken me? It's an honest question that Jesus had to ask himself. And so as we walk out this week into a place of vulnerability, of asking honest questions, I want you to know that you're not alone as you ask those questions, that Jesus has asked the same difficult questions that you will ask yourself throughout this week. I think that's incredible and I think it is amazing. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website, visit therocks.church.